Revelation 2, uh, one of my commentaries in my studying this week, quotes a story from a book named The Founding Brothers. In 1780, Major John Andre was captured while attempting to serve as a British spy in league with Benedict Arnold to produce a major strategic uh, win on the Hudson River at West Point. By all accounts, Andre was a model British officer with impeccable manners who had the misfortune of being caught doing his duty. Several members of Washington's staffs, including Hamilton, pleaded that Andre's life be spared because of his exceptional character. Washington dismissed the request as sentimental, pointing out that if Andre had succeeded in his mission, it might well have turned the tide of the war. The staff then supported Andre's request that he be shot like an officer rather than hanged as a spy. Washington also rejected this request, explaining Andre, regardless of his personal attractiveness, was no more and no less than a spy. He was hanged the next day. The author of the commentary says about this story. In this example from history, we see that George Washington was a man who understood what was at stake in the conflict. He had a clear vision of right and wrong, and he acted in accord with what he knew to be right. The rightness or wrongness of the hanging of Major John Andre had nothing to do with his appearance, his polite manner, or any affection his character might generate. He deserved to be hanged, so Washington had him hanged. There is a great need in our time for men and women to be like George Washington. People who are gripped by the truth of God's word to such an extent that it becomes the arbitrator of right and wrong. What God has spoken. We need people who understand what God calls the church to do and what God calls the church to be. That with no favoritism shown for those who from the world's perspective are wealthy, influential or significant. Not only is there a desperate need for the people of God, the church, to be gripped by the fact God's word is the absolute and final arbitrator of right and wrong. As we'll see today, those who are gripped in such a way are the only ones who overcome. Open your Bible to Revelation 2, verse 18 is where we're going to start. It should be on page 950 in your pew Bible. And when you find that, I'm going to ask you to stand to honor the reading of God's word. Revelation 2, 18 through 29. To the angel of the church of Thyatira write, These things saith the Son of God, who hath eyes like a flame of fire, and his feet are like fine brass. I know thy works, and thy charity, and thy service, and thy faith, and thy patience, and thy works, and the last to be more than the first. Notwithstanding, I have a few things against thee, because thou sufferest that woman Jezebel, which calleth herself a prophetess, to teach and to seduce my servants to commit fornication, and to eat things sacrificed unto idols. And I gave her space to repent of her fornication, she repented not. Behold, I will cast her into a bed with them that commit adultery with her into great tribulation, except they repent of their deeds. And I will kill her children with death, and all the churches shall know that I am he which searches the reins and hearts, and will give unto every one of you according to your works. But unto you I say, and unto the rest in Thyatira, as many as not had this doctrine, and which have not known the depths of Satan, as they speak, I will put on you none other burden, but that which you have, all, but that which you have already, hold fast till I come. And he that overcometh and keepeth my works unto the end, to him I will give power over the nations. And he shall rule them with a rod of iron, as the vessels of a potter's vessel of a potter they shall be broken to shivers, even as I received of my Father. And I will give him the morning star. He that hath an ear to hear what the Spirit saith to the churches. The title of the message is an overcoming church. Let's pray. Father, we love you today. You are great and awesome and worthy of our praise and worthy of our devotion. 
We need you today, God, far more than we know, far more than we can imagine, far more than we're aware. So, God, we we plead today for your Holy Spirit to come to open our hearts and to open our minds to our desperate need for you. We need your Holy Spirit to come and to, to make us a people like Washington, people who know what's at stake, a people devoted to your word and would say it is it is the foundation and it is the the truth of our lives. Father, what is at stake if we waffle on that, if we let go of that? Not only our eternal souls, but the eternal souls of those we might influence around us. There is a weight to that, and we should feel that weight today. Father, let your Holy Spirit come and, and open our ears so we could hear what he's saying to us from this message. Let your Holy Spirit come and and plow up the fallow ground of our hearts so the good seed of the Word can sink deep into our hearts and bring forth good fruit for your glory. Father, let your Holy Spirit come and, and help us to lay aside the cares of life and be focused in this this moment, this time, on what you're saying. Let your Holy Spirit come and Empower me that my speech and preaching would not be with the enticing words of man's wisdom, but would be in demonstration of your spirit and your power. So people's faith would not stand in my eloquence or my words or anything I've done, but in you, in your word, in your power, in your son. Father, let all I do bring glory to Jesus. Let all I do point to Jesus. Be glorified. All that happens, we ask in Jesus' name, for His sake. Amen. You may be seated. The letter of the church at Thyatira is the longest of the seven letters, which is interesting because Thyatira was the smallest of the seven cities. Now, there are two significant historical facts about Thyatira that have bearing on what Jesus says to the church there. First, Thyatira was a frontier city located on the road stretching from uh, the road between Sardis and Pergamos. This made Thyatira difficult, if not impossible, to defend for long periods of time. The the job of Thyatira was to be an armed outpost to hold up and defend long enough to give the other cities in the empire more time to prepare for the invading army. The, The people in Thyatira, then they understood the concept of holding fast against overwhelming odds. Secondly, the city was famous for its trade guilds. Thyatira was a fairly important city for manufacturing. These products, plus the major road running through it, brought merchants in from all over the world. The very life of the city was almost wholly dependent on the trade guilds for its survival. Now, the trade guilds are basically what we would call unions today. The political and financial influence of the guilds made it nearly impossible to practice a guild trade without being a part of a trade guild. The reality, this reality made it difficult for disciples of Jesus to practice their trades if they were tradesmen or merchants. The guild meetings were typically held in either a pagan temple or in the guild hall, which served as a shrine for a pagan god. The meeting started with a sacrifice to the patron god of the guild, and the meat from the sacrifice was eaten as a part of the feast. Eating the meat sacrificed to idols was seen as an act of worship to that particular god. So as the feast and the meeting went on, it devolved into drunken debauchery. Um, And this left disciples of Jesus with a very difficult choice. 
take part in the idolatry and iniquity in order to make a living, or remain faithful to Jesus and almost certainly lose your livelihood. Now, disciples of Jesus and Thyatira knew full well the appeal of compromise. In many ways, this entire letter is a warning against compromise, but not compromise in a general sense. In in this case, it's a very specific form of compromise, and it is false teaching. The the people of Thyatira, the church, had allowed a false teacher to come in and, and to teach them some things that enabled them to compromise with the world and begin to do things they knew God did not want them to do. Now, something to know is the promise Jesus gives is to those who overcome. And this is, I think, important because we see that in all of the letters. But even in these letters where Jesus speaks harshly to them, his desire is for them to overcome. But Jesus is for them. He wants them to succeed. He wants them to persevere them. He wants them to overcome. That's his goal. That's why he's sending these letters. So he he wants them to be an overcoming church. But in order for them to be an overcoming church, they're going to have to have discernment. They're going to have to be able to recognize the difference between what's right and what's wrong, what's real and what's false, what's true teaching of God and what's false. You cannot separate the need for discernment for the ability with the, from the ability to overcome. Right? So an overcoming church is a discerning church. So if we as a church, as the Northridge Free Will Baptist Church, if we are going to overcome and be faithful unto the end, we'll have to have discernment. And this passage gives us four areas where we must have discernment. We're going to overcome. First, we must discern the character of Jesus. When we talk about discerning the character of Jesus, we need to discern who he is and what he does. People of every generation since Jesus has come have had their own ideas about who Jesus is and what Jesus does. This, however, is not something we're authorized to do as Jesus has revealed himself to us in the word of God. And in this, he has told us who he is. He has told us what he is like, and he has told us what he does. In this particular letter, Jesus reveals himself in three different ways. First, to the angel of the church at Thyatira, right? These things saith the son of God. So Jesus is the son of God. He begins his self-revelation. By telling us he is the son of God. Now, this is one of the few times in all of God's word, Jesus identifies himself as the son of God. And it is the only time in the book of Revelation where he uses this title for himself. There are likely a couple of reasons for this. First, emperor worship was, of course, common in the empire. We've talked about that. A part of emperor worship was seeing Caesar as a son of God. Also, the patron god of Thyatira was Apollos, who was the son of Zeus. Jesus, beginning this letter by saying, I am the son of God, is saying that there is only one son of God. It's not Caesar and it's not Apollos. It's me. I am the one true son of God. Also, a reason for Jesus to declare himself to be the son of God is he wants him to be clear who he is. When we get into this letter, we're going to see his rebuke is stern. It's straightforward. I mean, he's he's almost harsh with this crowd. And they need to know who it is that's saying these things to them. Jesus isn't like some church growth consultant telling them some things they might ought to fix in order to be more successful. 
He's not a blogger on the internet with an idea about how church ought to be or what they ought to be like. He's not a YouTuber who's just out there and has found a free way to throw out his opinions and everybody ought to heed. No, no. He is the Son of God. And His words carry authority. And they need to be heeded as though He is the Son of God. He is the one to whom all allegiance is due. Secondly, Jesus is omniscient. These things saith the Son of God who has eyes like a flame of fire. Now, we have seen this image before in Revelation 1 and 14. We'll see it again in Revelation 19 and 12. And the image harkens back to Daniel 10 and 6. And it speaks of the omniscience and the fierceness of Jesus. The omniscience ensures he knows our deepest secrets. Actions committed behind closed doors are visible to Jesus. Actions committed under the covers of darkness are visible to Jesus. Now the fierceness of Jesus pictures him as heaven's warrior who is going to be the one to execute judgment upon the enemies of God, which will be significant later in this chapter. And then third thing Jesus tells us about himself, Jesus executes judgment. These things saith the Son of God who hath eyes like a flame of fire and his feet are like fine brass. Again, we've seen this Revelation 1.15, also back to Daniel 10.6. Brass is used to symbolize strength and or judgment. As the Son of God, Jesus has the strength to execute judgment. Jesus has the authority to execute judgment. And Jesus will execute judgment. In this letter in particular, on the false prophet and her followers. So what did this mean for the disciples in Thyatira and the disciples in Gaiman? First, it means the words of this letter are the words of the very Son of God Himself. As such... To disbelieve or disobey any part of this letter is to disbelieve or disobey Jesus himself. One cannot reject the words of Jesus and claim to be a disciple of Jesus at the same time. Jesus himself said, why do you call me Lord, Lord, if you don't do the things which I say? Again, these are not the words of a church growth expert, some Internet guru. These are the words of Jesus and they carry that weight and that authority and must be treated as such. Second, these words are right and real. They are right about what they say. And they are real, not a pie in the sky type of ideal of the way things ought to be. When Jesus rebukes for doing such things and says to do something else, this is what can be done. This is what must be done. Arguing or minimizing or justifying or denying doesn't change the truth of what Jesus said. Jesus is the omniscient Son of God who knows every thought, every action, and every motivation. And so He brings all of them and to bear, and he brings accuracy to every statement he makes, every issue he deals with. And then finally, the words of this judgment are resolute. They will come to pass. We'll, we'll see it later, but if Jezebel and her followers do not repent, Jesus will kill them. The overall teaching, of course, is if false teachers in any generation... And those who follow them do not repent. Jesus will kill them. This judgment is resolute. It will come to pass. Just as Jesus does not give empty promises, Jesus does not make empty threats. He can and He will execute every judgment given in this letter. 
we are to be disciples of Jesus who overcome through Jesus, then we must know Jesus. And knowing Jesus requires us to know who He is and what He does. We don't get to choose who Jesus is. We don't get to choose what Jesus is like. We don't get to choose what Jesus does. Jesus has already revealed this to us. Our job is to embrace Jesus as He is. And then to live in light of that and proclaim Him as He is. But to do this, we must have discernment. Because false teachers have existed in every generation of the church and of the people of God who come to thwart or undermine or minimize certain teachings about Jesus they do not like. And they're common. Right? We are living in a day where false teaching is mainstream. It's not in the fringe elements anymore. It's everywhere. Well, how do we know what's true and what's not if it's everywhere? We have to have discernment. And when someone says, this is what Jesus is like, this is what Jesus does, or this is who Jesus is, we have to test it and discern if they're telling the truth. We must be a discerning church if we are to be an overcoming church. Secondly, discern the way to serve Jesus. Now, did you know there is a right and a wrong way to serve Jesus? There is. It talks about this in verse 19. As always, Jesus knows, I know thy works, thy charity, thy service, and faith, and thy patience. He knows. He commends them for their works. Now, as I was studying this, it appears Jesus commends them for four separate types of works, right? Works, charity, service, faith, and patience. But, really, I think there's only two types. There's service and there's works. And the service and the works are done because of faith and charity and patience. right? And so what we see is the proper motivation for the things we do for Jesus. Right? We, we serve Jesus because we love Jesus. Jesus. We, we serve Jesus because we believe Jesus. And so when I love Jesus and I believe Jesus, I'll serve Jesus. And my service of Jesus will often require me to serve others. Not because Jesus came, he said, not to, to be served, but to serve others and to give his life as a ransom for others. That's our, that's our example. We serve, one of the ways we serve Jesus is by serving others. So if I love Jesus, if I have faith in Jesus, I'll serve Him by serving others. Now this can vary in the many ways we could do it. We could do it through sharing the gospel, feeding the hungry, clothing the naked, visiting the sick and the shut-in, finding and using our spiritual gifts, giving in response to needs, and just generally in various ways, serving others by serving Jesus. Now, in our service to Jesus, it's going to get difficult and hard at times. So this leads to the other part of it. The patience, the patient endurance. If I love Jesus and I believe in Jesus, I will keep on keeping on in my service to Jesus even when it's hard. I mean, it would be wonderful to say we commit our lives to Jesus and from that moment on, serving Him is just like the, the easiest, breeziest, most wonderful thing that's ever happened in our lives. And every time, it is just like this great spiritual high, more than the last, and, and we're just like, woo! Glory. I would love that. That's not reality. The reality is there are those times, and there are those times where we 
We do our dead level best and it just seems like it is does nothing. So what do we do in that time? Well, the temptation, of course, would be to quit. Forget it. I'm not going to do it anymore. I just give up. It's too hard. They didn't appreciate it. Nobody cares. Didn't do any good. I'm not good at this. But when we have faith in Jesus, when we love Jesus, we just do it over and over again. Right? Because really, Jesus hasn't called us to, to produce things, has he? He hasn't called us to save the lost. He called us to share the gospel, to plant and water seeds. Jesus hasn't called on us to make people appreciate our service. He has called us to serve people. He hasn't called us to do things and and them then be forced to say Jesus is awesome. He's called us to just serve them in His name and let Him do what needs to be done. So when we love Jesus, we believe in Jesus, we have faith in Him, we will persevere. We will have patient endurance in our service. Now, this is really challenging. He says the works, the last, are more than the first. Which I find that incredible. You know, a lot of times what happens is we, we first get saved and we get what they used to call being on fire for Jesus. And we're all in. I mean, we're, we're doing everything that can possibly be done to serve Jesus. But over time, the fire begins to wane. And we, we cut this out and we cut that out and we do less and less and less until over time... If we're honest, we're, we're not just overly active in our service to Jesus. I don't mean we're an apostate. I don't mean we're living in wicked sin. I mean we just go through the motions and just do some things. But what should happen is the, the more we love Him, the more we serve Him. That the longer we go, the greater our works of service to Jesus should become, not less. So their works increased as time went on. Could the same be said of us? If we are disciples of Jesus, who want to overcome through Jesus, we must know how to serve Jesus. And knowing how to serve Jesus requires us to have the proper motivations. Faith in Jesus, love for Jesus. Those are the only Maybe not the only, the primary motivators of our service to Jesus. Right? If I serve Jesus so he'll save me, that's of no benefit. That's no bueno. That does no good. If I serve Jesus because he saved me, that's a different issue. If I serve Jesus so he'll love me, that's no good. I get nothing from that. It does, I mean, it's useless. If I serve Jesus because he already loves me, well, that's a good thing. Right? Our, our motivation... For service to Jesus matters every bit as much, if not more, than our service itself. Why do we do what we do? An overcoming church is a discerning church. And as a, to be a discerning church, we must discern the right way to serve Jesus. Thirdly, discern the doctrine of Jesus. This is the longest part of the letter where Jesus rebukes them for what they have done. They, In their lack of discernment, They had allowed false doctrines to take root in the church. Commending them for the good things they have done, he says, notwithstanding, he has something against them. Now begins Jesus' correction of the church. There are essentially two areas of false doctrine they had allowed in the church. Jezebel 
and then the involvement in the mystery cult. So we'll talk about them each separately. First is Jezebel. The main problem, one of the main problems in the church, revolve around one woman, a false teacher who had claimed to be a true prophet of God. And again, keep in mind kind of what would happen. In this day, there were itinerant preachers and prophets was pretty common. That's kind of what Paul was. And they would show up at a church and be like, I'm a prophet. I have a word for y'all. Well, it wasn't. It was not uncommon to allow people to speak at that point. Oh, okay. Well, go ahead. But what they were supposed to do is discern, listen, and go. Uh, I don't think that's right. You need to stop and, and leave. That's not what they had done. Rather, as as this woman had come and and taught, they had allowed her to continue to teach, even though what she was saying was false. Now, just as an, an aside, I think it's unlikely her real name was Jezebel. I think Jezebel was a name Jesus gave her because of her similarities in character and influence to the Old Testament Jezebel from 1 Kings 16 through 22. Wicked queen who led people astray, led the people of God away from God. This is what this woman has done. Now, notice Jesus says she calls herself a prophetess. What he's saying is she's not. She says she's a prophetess, but she's really not. This is important. Because Jesus has warned us in the Sermon on the Mount, false teachers, they will come as wolves in sheep's clothing, right? So a false prophet isn't going to like come to the church or come to our door and knock on the door wearing black robes with a pentagram brand on their forehead and be like, hey, I'd like to talk to you about serving the wicked one this week. They're not going to do that. Instead, they're going to be wolves in sheep's clothing. They're going to do as much as they can to look and act like us. That they want to be perceived as genuine disciples of Jesus. They will do everything they can up to using the same words we use, but meaning something entirely different by it. Let me give you some examples. Jesus, eternal Son of God who died for our sins and rose again, or the first creation of God, or the brother of Satan. Gospel, the message of what God has done for us in Jesus Or a teaching saying we must fight injustice. Or we must fight oppression. Or we must eliminate poverty. Holy Spirit. Eternal Spirit. One person of the Trinitarian Godhead. Or impersonal sort of force by which God works in the world. Salvation. By grace alone. Through faith alone. In Jesus alone. Or by our good deeds. Or by our self-improvement. Or by our own morality. Jesus died for our sins or as our example. Or to show God's love. Or to demonstrate the evil of injustice and impression and oppression. The Bible. God's inspired infallible word. Or allegorical teachings. Allegorical stories teaching us about God and morality. See, those differences, they matter. That they matter a lot. And so what we find in in God's Word is many times people will say the same things we do. They will say gospel, but they mean a different gospel. They will say spirit, but they mean a different spirit. They will say Jesus, but they mean a different Jesus. And so we have to discern between what is true in the doctrine of Jesus and what is false. And so everything we know about Jezebel... Is 
she taught what was false. She claimed to be a prophetess and she seduced the servants of God, the disciples of Jesus there, to commit fornication and eat things sacrificed to idols. Here's what it means that she did that. I don't think she stood up in church and said, hey, go sleep around. Hey, why don't you just go worship whatever God you want to? Jesus is okay with that. That's not what she did. Remember the situation in Thyatira. Thyatira. There, there was the guilds. They were the most influential and powerful group in the city. They were essentially the center of social and financial life. To not be a part of a trade guild would hurt your social standing. And it would almost guarantee you had very little ability to provide for your family. But being a part of the trade guild meant being at the meetings. And taking part in the activities of the meeting. It seems what she did was she taught them it would be okay to go ahead and be in the guilds. To go ahead and, and do what everyone else did. To go ahead and, and, and to fit in. And then because she claimed to be a prophetess, she was putting Jesus' stamp of approval on it. Now she probably didn't say things like, Compromise your faithfulness to Jesus to fit ahead and get, to fit in and get ahead. Hell's probably not as hot as we've heard. I doubt she said things like that. False teachers are rarely that open. Instead, she probably said something like, "Well, how are you going to reach anyone if you're ostracized from not being a part of the trade guild?" Or, "Jesus hung out with sinners, shouldn't you?" Or, "Lost people need to see disciples of Jesus are just regular people." Or. By being part of the trade guild and their activities, you can love them into the kingdom. Or, think about how much money you could give to missions if you're a part of the trade guilds. Or, why would Jesus want you to do without? What kind of witness is that? Or, Jesus said he came to give us life and life more abundantly. How can you possibly have an abundant life without those jobs and the prosperity they bring? Or, as a parent, you want your kids to be successful, don't you? So why wouldn't God the Father want His children to be successful? You get the idea. The reality is she was probably only telling them what they already wanted to hear. By putting Jesus' blessing upon it, she sanctified their natural desires and their natural way of thinking. But as we see in verses 21 through 23, Jesus really wasn't putting His seal of approval on it. And His response is both amazing and a warning. It's amazing because his response is first mercy. Right? Look at verse 21. And I gave her space to repent of her fornication. And she repented not. Jesus gave her time to repent of her false teaching. I think this implies not just he didn't kill her. I think it implies he convicted her through his spirit. Maybe sent other prophets to tell them, you know, that's not right. But he was actively working on her, actively working to bring her to a place of repentance. And the wording of this is she knew what it was, right? She knew what she was teaching was wrong. She knew Jesus was trying to bring her to repentance and she repented not. She rejected it. And so judgment would fall. But even when judgment does fall... There's still hope, right? At the end of verse 22, except they repent. How awesome and how wonderful is our Savior. That we can live in great rebellion and great sin and teach horrific things. 
And rather than immediately bring us into judgment, he he works in his mercy to save us, to bring us to a place of repentance. How good and how merciful is our God. But there is also judgment. Verse 22, behold, I will cast her into bed. I think some translations say a sick bed. And then that commit adultery with her into great tribulation, except they repent of their deeds. And I will kill her children with death. So there's two aspects of the judgment Jesus is going to bring. We need to see first. Jezebel and those who embrace her teachings suffer judgment. This is why false teaching is such a big deal. It's not just the false teacher who's damned to face judgment. It's all those who embrace it. Now, Jezebel, in this instance, knew she was teaching wrong. Jesus was dealing with her. It is entirely possible her belief, those who were disciples and following after her did not. Yet because they believed what was false and wicked and wrong, they too will face judgment. So how important is false doctrine? It is very important. It can cause people, both teachers and believers of it, to end up in hell for all of eternity. So Jesus says that they and the disciples, her disciples, will suffer judgment. There will be she getting cast into a sickbed, the disciples falling into great tribulation, which we don't know what that means, but it's just something bad. And if they do not repent, Jesus will kill them and then they will face final judgment. Second, And this is maybe most important. Jesus himself executes the judgment for his glory. Notice what he says in verse 22. I will cast her into a bed and into great tribulation. I will kill her children with death. Jesus is not even remotely afraid to be the one responsible for bringing this judgment upon them. But he's not this peacenik hippie. I just believe something and be happy and that's okay. That's that's not him. In fact, later in Revelation, we're going to read about the wrath of the Lamb. Jesus, and I don't have time to get into this, but when we get into the, the seals being broken, who breaks the seals to release judgment upon the earth? An angel? Some random person? One of the apostles? Jesus does it. Jesus executes the judgment. And He does it for His glory. So that all the churches will know. I am He which searched the hearts and the minds. And will give them to everyone according to their works. He will execute judgment so everybody knows who He is. He is the Son of God. He is the omniscient Son of God. He is the omniscient Son of God who executes judgment upon the earth. Must discern between what is real as far as doctrine goes and what is wrong as far as doctrine goes. But the the Jezebel isn't the only one, only false issue that's come into the church. In verse 24, we find there are also mystery cults. So he talks about those in the rest of the here who haven't received this doctrine, the doctrine of Jezebel, and those who have not received what he calls the depths of Satan. Uh, in the King James Bible, it calls them the depths of Satan. 
Now, Thyatira had a strong set of what they called mystery cults. And the mystery cults offered a deeper truth or secret truth to those who would join up with them and participate in their ritual. These cults offered a a deeper knowledge that no one else knew, but their disciples could know if they would join with them. They would give them a little taste to get them on the hook, and then they would draw them deeper and deeper into this. And Jesus calls these mystery cults and their, what their, their deeper knowledge the depths of Satan. Now to understand why he calls them the depths of Satan, you have to remember what God's Word warns us about when it comes to teaching. God's Word warns us about the spirit of Antichrist which is already at work in the world. The spirit of Antichrist is at work in the world opposing Jesus and His kingdom in whatever way it can. Not only this... But God's Word also warns us about seducing spirits which propagate doctrines of demons. So 1 John 4, 3, if you want to read about the spirit of Antichrist, 1 Timothy 4, particularly 4, 1, about the seducing spirits propagating doctrines of demons. So Jesus calling these these doctrines the the depths of Satan, it's not hyperbole. It, It is a legitimate statement of the reality. These mystery cults, We're teaching doctrines of demons through the spirit of Antichrist to draw people away from Jesus and deeper and deeper into these secret cults and these secret knowledge. In many ways, the mystery cults of Thyatira are very similar to the conspiracy theories of our day. Both offer a deeper knowledge and secret truth no one but those on the inside know. Both offer to reveal deeper truth to you if you'll just come down the rabbit hole with them. Both would offer you a taste of their secret knowledge in order to draw you deeper and deeper in. Now, conspiracy theories are all the rage in our day. You may have heard of some. Pizza places in D.C. where the right words get you in the back where you can molest and imprison children. Media elites who drink the blood of children. You can buy overpriced furniture and with the right code they'll ship a kidnapped child inside your furniture. The USA is really a corporation and not a republic. But in early March, as early as Thursday, in fact, something is going to happen to shift it back. And when it does, President Trump will be re-inaugurated as president. This was originally supposed to happen in January, but it was delayed. Details are sketchy as to why. The COVID vaccine has alien DNA in it. It has demon DNA in it. It has a tracker or a transmitter in it. It is the mark of the beast. It's preparing us for the mark of the beast. On and on they go. Now, something we may not realize, but we should, is all conspiracy theories have a religious component to them. The heart of a conspiracy theory is nothing is ever as it seems. This is particularly aimed at institutions or people with power and influence. Corporations aren't merely out to make money. They're really a part of a global cabal seeking to dominate the world. Social media isn't just a place for memes and cat videos. They're also part of the secret cabal to spy on us. The government, need I say more. But what we don't realize is this same mindset also applies to religions, especially Christianity. Because Christianity is essentially the largest world religion. And the cabal could not let an organization as large as the Christian church, with the influence it has and the worldwide reach it has, It couldn't let it exist without in some way being a part of the cabal. But, and this is kind of key, the Christian church is not new to the cabal. 
It has almost always been a part of it. Been in on it from the beginning. This is why people believe there are secret books of the Bible in the Vatican. This is why people believe there are secret codes within the Bible. The church is in on it. And the church has always been in on it. And such that its, its book has been crafted in such a way that it, one, it's crafted to keep the secrets out of the hands of the common people. Two, to hide secret codes within itself so people can use those codes to find the deeper truths. Or three, one, and two. And one and two may seem contradictory, but in a churches or an organization as large as the church, surely there have been those who were in on it and those who were not in on it. So those who were in on it hid the books of the Bible that revealed the truth. Those who were not in on it put secret codes in it so that we could find it if we just weren't sheeple and could look. No conspiracy theory is purely political. Once you get deep enough into it, you find the religious component. And the religious component will always really be one of two things. It will contradict God's word and thus challenge the reliability of God's word. Right. Because there are missing books in the Vatican. There are secret codes. The Bible isn't really the mess. The story of God's redemption of man through Jesus. It's these secret codes or it will challenge who Jesus is, undermine who Jesus is and what Jesus has done. It really isn't the son of God. He really didn't die on the cross for our sins. This was a story the cabal came up with to keep the masses in check. And this contradiction, this challenge, this undermining of the foundations of the Christian faith, they come from the spirit of Antichrist. And they are, without doubt, doctrines of demons. And here's where the danger comes in. Once someone gets in deep into conspiracy theory and have bought all in with all these other deeper truths and secret knowledge and are now confronted with a secret truth and deeper knowledge about God's word and Jesus, which clearly, again, would be from the spirit of the Antichrist and would be doctrines of demons. What do you do then? I mean, what do you do at that point? You, you have believed all in on all this other stuff. And you've said it. It doesn't matter how silly it looks. It, it's true. I, I know it doesn't. You know, these are wild and outrageous ideas, but they're true. They're absolutely 100% true. And then the same conspiracy vein is saying Jesus isn't the Son of God. The Bible isn't the Word of God. Oh, man. I've bought all in over here. But now this. If this is wrong... If this about Jesus and the Bible is, is doctrines of demons from the spirit of Antichrist, what, what's that? What's the rest of it? Can the spirit of Antichrist give doctrines of demon in one area and, and absolute truth in another? Or is it possible that what I have believed in all of it is from the spirit of Antichrist? And is all doctrines of demons, is all lies. Well, at this point, a person will experience a crisis of faith. I think it's like the crisis of faith Isaiah talks about. You know, Isaiah talks about a, a guy who goes in the woods and he chops down a tree. And half of it he cuts up and he builds a fire and cooks him something to eat. And then half of it he cuts and he carves into an idol and then he bows down and prays to it. And as he's bowing down praying to it, he won't bring himself to ask. 
cut down this tree to make a fire and to cook from it, and now I'm worshiping the other half of the tree. Is it possible I'm worshiping a lie? It's that same sort of crisis of faith here. And there may be various ways to respond to this crisis of faith, but I tend to believe people respond in one of two ways. People either renounce the conspiracy theories as doctrines of demons from the spirit of Antichrist and fully embrace God's word and God's son. Or they're too deep. They can't let go of that. And so they will let go of Jesus and God's word in order to fully embrace the conspiracy theory. Now, I've seen both. I've seen people who were Christian, who were involved in this, and got deep down, and when they hit the religious aspect of it, they couldn't say, is this, uh, is this a lie? Because this is. And so they said, it's, it's all true. And they went on to renounce Christ and renounce God's word completely. This is what conspiracy theories do. This is what the mystery cults did. And in this, conspiracy theories essentially operate as mystery cults of our day. And those who chase the theories long enough and go far enough down the rabbit hole will either eventually come all the way out, fully devote themselves to Christ, or they will become a cult member devoted to the mystery religion they have embraced. People deceived by what at first appears to be secret truths and deeper knowledge, but is in reality the depths of Satan. If we are to be disciples of Jesus who overcome through Jesus, we must know the doctrine of Jesus. Knowing the doctrine of Jesus requires us to be able to discern between actual doctrine from Jesus and doctrines of demons from the spirit of the Antichrist. And without the ability to discern between those things, we will not be an overcoming church. An overcoming church is a discerning church. And to be a discerning church, we must discern the doctrine of Jesus from the doctrine of the Antichrist. And then finally, discern the worth of Jesus. Not everyone had gone after Jezebel and the mystery cults. Some of them had stayed the course, and Jesus said he would put no other burden upon them but that which they already have. Hold fast. Can you imagine how hard it must have been to resist the seduction of the teachings of Jezebel and of the mystery cults? I mean, the teachings of Jezebel particularly sounded really good. I mean, it tickled the ears. It was, for the most part, probably what they already wanted to hear. And she claimed to be a prophetess and put Jesus' stamp of approval on it. There must have been tremendous peer pressure from within the church to accept it. Come on, we, we, we've all... Are you saying I'm not a good disciple of Jesus? Are, are you saying I don't know Jesus as well as you do? I, I Surely you know I'm a good Christian as you are. And look, I've embraced it. You should too. But there must have been tremendous amount of peer pressure to just go along. Go along with the rest of us. Everybody, look, can you be the only one that's right? Everybody else has bought it. Surely you can see we're all in. You should be in too. There would have been tremendous social pressure. Being a part of the... The guilds and taking part of their activities was not just accepted, it was expected. I mean, there must have been tremendous social pressure from the world around you saying, go ahead and, and join up. I mean, 
You've got a person who's teaching from your God who says it's okay. Your God has given the stamp of approval. Join. And despite this, some had not given in. Some had remained faithful. And Jesus said they were to stay the course. How long? Till he comes. It's a long time. Now, it's interesting. He calls it a burden, right? I will put no other burden on you. I thought that was an interesting phrase. But it makes sense if you think about it. Because there is a sense in which faithfulness to Jesus can be a grind, a burden, all on its own. Imagine for a second, you struggle in your faithfulness to Jesus. But maybe you struggle with some particular sin. Or maybe you struggle with a persistent doubt of some sort. Or maybe you struggle with daily denying yourself and dying to yourself. Maybe you struggle to not conform to the world in some way. Maybe you struggle to not embrace a belief you're pretty sure is wrong, but so many around you have embraced and it sounds so good. Whatever it is, you struggle Now, if you imagine faithfulness to Jesus as a daily thing, it's not that big of a deal. What's my goal today? Be faithful to Jesus. Just keep going. But what if we start thinking long term? Be faithful to Jesus through this struggle today, tomorrow, the day after, on and on. Until Jesus comes back or I die. Well, now that... That is an overwhelming thought. This is why Jesus said he's not going to lay on them any other burden than just keep going. Just stay faithful. And they do this because they know his worth. He moves into the promises to him that overcometh and keepeth my works until the end. Man, again. How long are we to be faithful? Until the end. To him I will give power over the nations. He shall rule them with a rod of iron. As the vessels in a potter's, of a potter shall they be broken to shivers. And I receive as I receive the Father. So this is a reference to Psalm 2. Psalm 2 pictures God and his anointed Messiah. His anointed king. And the, the kings of the earth rebel against them. In an effort to throw off the bonds. And God laughs at them and he will go ahead and he will put his anointed king upon the throne. And once his anointed king is upon the throne, it talks about him taking a rod of iron and smashing clay pots. And in the smashing of the clay pots with a rod of iron, it it was an Egyptian thing. And what the Egyptians would do is they were getting ready to go to war. They would line up pots. And and maybe they had the names of cities that were in rebellion or countries they were fighting against. And then Pharaoh would take his rod of iron in an effort to show them what the might of Egypt would accomplish against these enemies. He would smash them to pieces. Bam! And just show there are no one who can fight against Pharaoh. And in Psalm 2, in Revelation 2, Jesus takes that for himself. And the picture is, though the world rebel, though the kings of the earth unite together, Though the people rage and plot, though the Antichrist, the spirit of Antichrist, bring false doctrine and send false teachers, Jesus will still reign. 
Nothing will stop him. He will, when he decides to rise up and rule, he will rise up and rule and he will conquer the enemy as easily as you might break a clay pot with a rod iron. And we as disciples of Jesus, we get to be a part of his victory and we get to be a part of his eternal reign. The day is coming. Every knee will bow and every tongue will confess Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And those of us who have bowed the knee now and stay faithful until the end, we get to be a part of that victory. Verse 28, the overcomer also gets the morning star. In Revelation 22, 16, Jesus is the morning star. While this expression is not completely explained in God's word, it is likely to refer to Jesus' return. The morning star, as, as they understood it, would have been a star that appeared just before dawn at the darkest and coldest part of the night. It blew away the darkness and it shined forth. In a similar way, when the world is dark, at its darkest, when the world seems most hopeless, Jesus will burst on the scene, scatter the darkness, scatter the evil, and give His promised rewards to those who overcome. So we, we persevere until the end. We hold fast and we keep our burden until the end because Jesus is worth it. And what we receive when Jesus returns is worth more than anything we lose in this life. And if we're to be disciples of Jesus who overcome through Jesus, we must know the worth of Jesus. So the worth of Jesus requires us to know Jesus is greater than anything this world offers. And the fact Jesus will win in the end, an overcoming church is a discerning church and a discerning church discerns the worth of Jesus. Throughout the message, I've talked about the church, overcoming church, a discerning church. But as we've talked about before, there is no nebulous entity called the Northridge Free Will Baptist Church. There's there's us. And whatever our church is, whatever our church does, it's a reflection of who we are and what we do. So if the Northridge Free Will Baptist Church overcomes, it will be because we overcome. If the Northridge Free Will Baptist Church is a discerning church, it is because we are a discerning people. So are you, am I, discerning? Are we discerning when it comes to the character of Jesus? He is who He says He is, no matter what the world or anyone else may say. Are we discerning in the way to serve Jesus? We're not earning favor. We're not earning salvation. We love Him and we believe Him. And so we will do for Him. Are we discerning when it comes to the doctrine of Jesus? The other doctrines, doctrine of the Antichrist, doctrines of demons, it's out there. It's common. Lots of people promote it, believe it, accept it. But are we willing to say, if it's not here, it's not right? Are we discerning when it comes to the worth of Jesus? I think this one will be a big thing soon. Because the days, I believe, will come sooner than we imagine in which faithfulness to Jesus will be costly for us as disciples of Jesus in America. It may cost us friendships. It may cost us jobs. It may cost us levels of prosperity. Things along those lines. 
And if Jesus is worth it, then I'll be faithful through those costs. If Jesus is not worth it, I will compromise in order to keep the job, to keep the friendship, to keep the prosperity, to keep whatever I fear losing. Are we discerning? We must be if we're to overcome. I don't have a... Like, come and do this as a way of responding. All I can leave us with are the questions. Are we discerning in those areas and in those ways? Are we willing to stand alone and be right with God's Word and be wrong with the people around us, no matter who they are or how they feel about it? If we're to overcome, we must. Let's stand.